Okay, uh, welcome uh, class to to my first podcast. You know, for this uh, thesis development, you know, course that uh, we are we are together with, and to, today we are very very lucky to have Professor Toby Miller, who some of you have uh, had uh, afternoon tea with last week, but now uh, I want to follow up uh, today with him in uh, uh, you know in terms of how he developed his thesis, okay, his books, okay, in the, in the past. So first, could uh, Toby tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, how you decided to, okay, to become a scholar? Because we're the the listeners are, you know, uh, young scholars, uh, in their growth. Yeah. Well, I fell into it in the same way you might fall into a mine shaft. <laughs> well, this was a mine shaft. Sorry for the silly pun. So, after university. I wanted to do a PhD, so I started doing one on comparative political culture of Cameroon and Kenya. I wanted to see the difference between French and German and English colonialism on two different sides of Africa. I'd studied Africa when I was an undergrad, though I'd never been there. So this was when you were at uh, Griffith. No, this was at the Australian National University, oh, okay. Canberra, or okay. ANU in Canberra. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and during my undergrad degree, I'd worked on radio uh, the whole time. I worked for the Australian Broadcasting Commission, as it was then called. It's now called the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is like the ABC, uh, sorry, the BBC in Britain mm -hmm. or CBC in Canada, though mm -hmm. without commercials, or National Public Radio NPR in the United or States, or RTHK in Hong Kong, yeah. or RTHK mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. And I'd enjoyed doing that. And I, after a while, decided that I didn't really want to be an academic, and I didn't think I was smart enough to do a PhD. I was completely <laughs> daunted, so I dropped out of my first PhD. What you're going to discover in the next two minutes, Jack, is, and listeners, is that I'm a serial dropout. So I'm a bad example for your listeners. But the point is, there's hope, and there's hope in people not necessarily following a completely teleological trajectory. Sometimes, the missed opportunities, the failures, or the different paths taken lead somewhere interesting. I sound like I'm trying to be a Chinese philosopher. <laughs> in any indeed, we have a student, we have a mixture of students who had work experiences, who decided to change gear, so that's common. Yes, okay, teaching. well that's good. So I won't yeah. feel like quite such a freak, because you know in the United <laughs> States you're basically executed if you fail to be completely theological <laughs> in your academic career. I mean, think about it, right? So uh, then I went to work in a bank I was a merchant banker with Chase Manhattan. Oh, I see. And this was a huge ideological shift for me. I was a Marxist, and I thought all forms of corporate life were evil. But I'd grown up in a social democratic household, in countries that were social democratic, and I wondered if perhaps I was just too simple-minded in my views, and I should try something else. What I discovered was that my views were not nearly conspiratorial enough, <laughs> that corporate capitalism was worse than I then you could imagine. Uh -huh. You and I were talking earlier today about waking up in the middle of research on important topics and being anxious about the people who were suffering. I had nightmares when I was at the bank when we were involved in a major takeover of a mining corporation. In about where? In West Australia? Or? No, it was a worldwide corporation okay. called Delhi Oil. I had nightmares thinking about men working underground and the dangers they experienced. And then we were involved in the takeover of a big British bank 
which had a bunny rabbit, mm -hmm. a rabbit as its emblem. And I woke up with visions of rabbits with their heads being cut off. So I realized... That's worse than my nightmares. <laughs> I can't stay at the bank. So I left the bank. I went and worked. And then I got an opportunity to go back into the media, into television. I didn't take it for whatever reason. And I went and worked in the public service and then in the Senate in Australia. The Australian Senate is based on the United States Senate model. It's a federal country. Mm -hmm. And so their political system is more or less a mixture of Britain and mm -hmm. the United States. So I worked there for a while. During that time, I tried out a couple of other graduate degrees. Again, I felt too stupid and I dropped out. What, what, what were they? One was a graduate diploma in industrial relations, uh -huh. where the economics part, which I studied, was taught by Marxists. And sure. I got a very good training in industrial sociology mm -hmm. and labor market economics from a leftist perspective. Now I see where your political economy comes from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did political science and history as my undergrad uh -huh. degree. And I got a bit of it there. Uh, but I didn't do well on the law part. I didn't fit in. They had a much more conservative law professor. And also, I just didn't feel I could do it. So I dropped out of that. And then in my late 20s, I wanted to get out of Canberra. And I had the chance to go to Perth. I got a very good fellowship from the government and one from Murdoch University, named after Rupert Murdoch's great uncle, but no connection to him or his press holdings. It's also a very influential public intellectual. Yeah, a very yeah. public intellectual. It's Walter Murdoch in Australian life in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I started doing a master's in public policy because I wanted, in those days, when we were moving into neoliberalism, there was a movement that... This was in the 80s. In the 80s. Uh -huh. And I used to be a speechwriter. <coughs> privately and for the government, Australian government on behalf of neoliberalism, but we didn't, I didn't know that's what it was called. Was that the New Labour Party of Australia? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Okay. I, I wrote speeches not so much for the politicians but for business guys who were front people for the government's uh -huh, agenda. Yeah. The government's agenda was make all of education more responsive to industry and less involved in the self-legislating realm of the profession. So I wrote these speeches. I was very uncomfortable doing it. And one of the things that people who were interested in labor market economics wanted to do was to bring together ideas of equity in terms of equality and decency uh, and efficiency. And the question was how separate these had to be. Efficiency understood in neoclassical economic terms. This was a real issue for me. I got very interested. So I went over to Murdoch. I started this master's in public policy. But when I got there, I discovered that in the time since I'd left university, there were these people like Michel Foucault mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Stuart Hall and semiotic theorists and media studies people. There were new kinds of feminism, which were very open and interesting to me, that had emerged. There were post-colonial critiques. I didn't know these words. When mm -hmm, I finished mm -hmm. university, there was no media studies, communication studies, cultural studies. I'd never heard of these things. I'd never heard of these theorists. I taught myself Marxism in university because we were encouraged to read E.P. Thompson. A friend of mine read Raymond Williams, so I got interested in Gramsci, Adorno, Horkheimer, mm -hmm. Habermas. Oh, the philosophers. These not the so-called media studies people. No, well, I didn't uh -huh. even know there was a media studies. Right, right, right. But I could see the natural connection between your, I would say, uh, very uh, eclectic okay, uh, work experiences, and also the, the scholarship, the very unusually diverse and rich scholarship mm -hmm. that you have been uh, developing with regard to, to from Hollywood to 
Latin America to the environmental movements. Well, thank you, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll get off the narrative drive in a moment, but I guess it is an interesting one in that it's irregular. And by the way, when I was in undergrad, I also, like a lot of us, did lots of working-class labouring jobs. You know, uh -huh. I didn't have a government grant. I had this job at the ABC part-time, but the rest of the time I did things... ABC is the largest broadcaster in Australia. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, I, in between, I was doing things like working as a forester, uh, cutting down trees, really? destroying the natural really? environment. I, I did odd jobs working um, at schools or working in people's houses or working in people's small businesses, you know, very manual labor intensive. So I did a lot of that. And then um, after I discovered semiotics, cultural studies, media studies, I also discovered that because I had this work experience in the ABC mm -hmm. and the public service, I could get a job in academia even with just an undergrad degree, because I could legitimately say, well, I can teach radio production, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I know the policy process. And this was a time when these things were becoming quite current. So I dropped out again, my fourth <laughs> dropout from the Masters, and for the next four or five years in Sydney, in Brisbane, at Griffith University, and then back at Murdoch, I had short-term academic jobs. Uh, so for in the next five years, uh, four years, I guess I moved around quite a lot. And then I decided I'd better do a PhD because I thought about going back into the media and specifically television. At this point, I was 32, and I was told I was too old-looking and I couldn't get back into TV. So I thought, okay... Talking about discrimination, yeah. There's no future for me in the media. I'd better do a PhD. So I did a PhD, and then a couple of years later, a year later, I moved to New York. So enough about me. But that's the background history. It's very complicated, convoluted. When I came to write the PhD... I just sat down and did it, it burst out of me. Because some of the concerns that I was interested in that I've mentioned allowed me to draw, as you say, on work experience, but also on years of teaching and reading essays and reading lots of books by people mm -hmm. I admire to produce something. And that, that was my first book called The Well-Tempered Self, Citizenship, Culture, and the Postmodern Subject. So this was based on your uh, PhD dissertation? It's my PhD minus one chapter, mm -hmm. a lot rewritten, plus a big conclusion. And essentially what I did was to write in what I'll call a modular form. And let me explain to people what I mean by that. And I'll draw in this on my experience of many years as Director of Dissertations at New York University and as also the Director of Graduate Studies there at different times. Uh, and then 10 years at the University of California in Riverside but most of my graduate instruction was at NYU, where it was really all I did. I did much more undergrad in Riverside. And my experience of successful dissertations, and I was in a very good department at NYU, where basically every dissertation became a book with a major press, and everybody mm -hmm. got a job, because like Annenberg, where you went, NYU was the film school, right? mm -hmm. in the same way that Annenberg is the communication school, and you get published and you get a job. Unlike at Annenberg, you don't get a good training, Unlike at Annenberg, you don't get turned into. No, you're too humble. Yeah. Unlike at Annenberg, you don't get turned into a, a value-free robot. You manage to avoid this somehow. <laughs> That's the, there are pluses and minuses. So not getting a good training at NYU in cinema studies meant that people kept their radicalism and actually developed it. But in any event, Mike's encounters with graduate students showed me that there were two ways in which they basically wrote their PhDs. Mm -hmm. One was the modular way, which I did. By which I mean, they had all these different disparate thoughts and pieces of writing from their graduate education or from other parts of their lives. 
normally there was something that knitted that together, some narrative thread that could be made. And so you slammed the things together like that, bang, and saw what happened. Because some people think like that. They I mean, can't sit down and think about writing 100,000 words. Right. right? But they can sit down and write 800 or 5,000. Right? What does it look like if you put that together? Mm -hmm. And then the other way of doing it is the person who can't operate like that, who needs much more order in their life, and who has a vision, has a big thing they want to say. And for them, the modular method will not work. What they need is to say, the point I'm going to make is this, I'm going to show that it's true in this way, and now I'll sit down and write. So it's a much more programmatic uh, approach versus the modular. But in order to do the modular approach, I've been encouraging my students to do the same. Okay? But uh, usually when they arrived at a thesis developments, they had things that are pieces that, that they have de developed. Some of them, uh, you know, they're very inorganic. Mm -hmm. okay? They're too far away to be put together. But how, how can you, is, is, how can people without, uh, because obviously from your work experience, a life, very rich life experience, you have developed, a, relatively speaking, a latent programmatic way to view things. And then these things get into different pieces when you're talk, working different coursework, term paper, conference papers, and then they come together, okay? You, there, there, there needs to be some you know, adjustments after you have the modules, but uh, what would be your advice to people yeah. who, who, need, who, who do not have a large you know, uh, programmatic worldview? Well, I would say there's the version you need to give to your mother, mm. or your father, or your cousin, mm -hmm. or your friend. The intelligent person, perhaps educated, perhaps not, probably outside academia. What do you need to tell them that means they can give a two-sentence account mm -hmm. of what you're doing? What is that two-sentence account? And so a good way is to have, if you're sitting at a desk writing, some post-its, they can be physical or virtual, mm -hmm. that have your two-sentence version of what it is you're trying to do, and that also have your list of the major subtopics, subtopics, mm -hmm. and then just write. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a, a philosophical underpinning that animates you, if it's not feminism, Marxism, post-colonialism, neoclassical economics, if you don't have something that you can cling on to but gives you guys, Freudianism, Confucianism, <laughs> Ismism, as John Lennon would say, if you don't have that, something will emerge inductively from your process of writing. But when you write, and when you then all reorganize the writing, have in front of you all the time the two-sentence account for your aunt, uncle, friend, Mm -hmm. and have in front of you what those subtopics are and shift around your prose to suit them. And if the bulk of the prose that, it, that emanates doesn't suit the subheadings, the subtopics, then you need to change them, revise mm -hmm. them, and they will become your chapters. Right? So, what does this mean? In my case, for example, my two-sentence version of what it is that I do is that I'm interested in subjectivity and power. By subjectivity, I don't necessarily mean what I feel versus what is really the case. I mean the way in which we are made as subjects and we experience the world as subjects. Subjects of talk, mm -hmm. subjects of categorization, 
subjects of physical action. Mm-hmm. You know, I am in the census as a person of a certain age, religion, gender, etc. I am brought up to think that way by my family, by schooling, by the bourgeois media, and so on. But then there's the other thing, which is how I actually experience it. And the classic case for me is the way in which queer people have appropriated negative terms like queer mm-hmm. to be positive terms so they're, they're subjectified sure, sure. by this terminology but then they occupy it and mm-hmm. use it for themselves and so that, that, that notion of subjectivity how we are categorized and then how we experience ourselves and the conflict or the symmetry between those two and then on the power side what are the power relations both negative in a Marxist or liberal sense and positive in a Foucauldian sense. By negative, I mean restrictions by the state, by corporations, by families on one's freedom to act. By positive, in the Foucauldian sense, the endowment of capacities mm-hmm. given by those very forces. So Absolutely, again, there's, yeah. a, there's a struggle. And then it's to say I look at the political economy and the political technology of culture. By political economy, it's the qui bono, in Latin terms, you know, who benefits mm-hmm. from what goes on materially. Political technology, what is the rationality in a Foucauldian way that is animating or driving the phenomenon I'm trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Now I know that's a lot for an aunt or a cousin to get. I would use slightly less fancy language, but that's the language for the graduate students. Uh-huh. And that tells me what I need to look for when I do my research. I need to find out who's benefiting, who's losing, how the logics are operating that are animating the site I'm on, who is being constructed as a subject, and how are they constructing themselves. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of my agenda, the agenda comes from different sources. The agenda comes from activism. Where are people protesting, in whatever way they're protesting? about their situation in culture. Right? Secondly, what is the state of play academically on this topic? Not just in my discipline, whatever that is. So this is uh, uh, an, another question I want to ask you about is uh, what is a good literature review to you? Because you, you talk about the, the state of the play mm. and how can you define what is the initial body of literature and how can you arrive at you know this uh, magical thing that you talk about the state of play because obviously you can play uh, better than most uh, people even if they are in the same field and now I get one answer from that already from your you know uh, answer just now thanks to your you know uh, subjectivity and power okay explanation that uh, uh, already start to shed new lights on my reading of your on my literary review of your <laughs> old, you know work on sports on Hollywood, you know, on American, you know, export of popular culture. I think that's uh, uh, you. You probably uh, uh, see this state of play deeper than many people, you know, in that let's say sports communication, okay, or you know, uh, public diplomacy fields. Mm. Uh, but but how can you? How did you arrive okay. from okay. the yeah. initial field, you know, and de- define the field in? Uh, uh, you know, creative way, and then arrive at this right. uh, deeper understanding of the state of play. Well, if I have that, but I can tell you how I do a literature review. Let me put it that way, and I think it derives from the fact that, as I said, I was a history and political science major, and I did my PhD in philosophy and communication. 
So I had very different fields influencing me. Uh, let's take Hollywood and Hollywood's influence overseas. Now, the classic person in film studies or communication or media studies, if you look at their referencing system, will go to the literature in their discipline. Yes, that's what and people usually do. Obediently yeah. trot this out, and they'll do it in one language, and the language will probably be English. With a phenomenon like that, I don't think that's good enough. So to take one example, something I mentioned to you in conversation the other day, I discovered when I was involved in the Global Hollywood Project with my colleagues, it was collaborative, as you know, that there were very interesting regression analyses undertaken by sociologists, quantitative sociologists, and economists of the relationship between stardom and financial success of cinema. And these regression analyses showed that stars did not matter very much, despite the rhetoric, despite the PR campaigns, despite what the bourgeois media think, despite what we all think. Jackie Chan matters, but actually, not so much. Not in terms of absolute guarantees, or used to matter, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, the only way to deal with this is to say, Hollywood as a concept is the construction not only of, name your discipline, cinema, studies, media, communication. It is the construction of economics, public health, pediatrics, everything right through to back health. You look through the medical literature, there's a vast amount on watching cinema, on movies, on television, on phones, on whatever, in terms of the impact that it has. All of that should be what we do. So when the University of California in San Francisco, which is basically a medical school only, mm -hmm. it is effectively the medical school of Berkeley, has, as it does, a superb, although poorly visually constructed webpage about the impact of smoking on people and its relationship to media coverage. And there are numerous studies done by them that are content analyses of the representation positively of smoking in Hollywood motion pictures and television. That never gets discussed in this other literature, especially in cinema and media studies, partly because they don't like the idea of effect studies or effects implications, but partly because they simply won't look at anything that is quantitative. And even communication studies, which is invested in the madness often of things like health communication, doesn't really look at what medical research says. It looks at what health communication says. So my, uh, my view is I have to look at every discipline there is that talks about Hollywood and its success. Mm -hmm. I have to look at neoclassical economists for whom the only real question is what is the most efficient stratagem for producers? In other words, how do you construct supply cheaply in order to meet or construct, although they would never admit they were constructing demand? I have to know what that position is. I have to know what quantitative sociologists are saying about success. I have to know what quantitative audience researchers are saying about reception. I have to know what policymakers, not just the theorists in universities, but policymakers are saying about policies to and programs attract Hollywood investment or policies to keep it out. I have to understand, if I can, why China, for example, has restricted the number of mm -hmm. Hollywood films yeah. that may be imported at the same time as it wants to have joint ventures with Hollywood studios. How does that happen and why does it happen? I need to know what the public policy literature says. And I need to operate beyond English. I have to be able to work with, in a case like that, the major publishing languages of the world. So in scholarly terms, that means 
you've got to look at English, French, Spanish, for sure. And in media coverage terms, you've got to be able to look at those languages because they cover much of the Asian world, if you mm -hmm. think about India, but they also cover much of the rest of the world because of colonialism and, of course, a Mandarin or Potonois, forgive my pronunciation. So I can do some of that myself, some of it I can't. So that involves collaboration with others. But that's the kind of literature review that's involved. And the literature review needs to start from the precept that the literature review isn't just academic. Mm -hmm. It must be reports done by activists. I mean, look at some of the SACOM reports or the Greenpeace reports. Very scholarly, very careful, mm -hmm. just as important, in fact, much more so than the average similar undertaking produced by academics must include that and frankly some of the uh, reportage you get in something like the Atlantic Monthly or mm -hmm. the New Republic or the New Yorker in the US terms is involved has come from very 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 precise journalistic practice sometimes involves years observation, of work yeah. years of work serious embedding in a territory and so on all that stuff has to be looked at critically, but no more critically than is the academic stuff. So the main thing is, especially if you're a critical scholar, especially if you're in what is often a vulnerable field like communication studies, well regarded here at Chinese U, but not well regarded in the world of academia in general, you have to make sure that you know all the angles on what you're discussing and even how to define it before you get up and speak. And that is my way. Mm -hmm. I don't venture until I've read everything I can get my hands on. Sounds uh, very, very inspiring, yeah. And uh, now that I'm, I'm very glad that you're you are mentioning the overall status of communication, media, and cultural, you know, forgive me, I'm mentioning all these things in one, under one big umbrella. Uh, you know, the, what do you think, because the, the, the fun, you know, for myself, I'm, I'm sure uh, for you as well, to work with our, you know, PhD and MPhil, you know, students is uh, that, they're going to become better scholars for us, okay? And also, they are the future, okay? Yeah. You know, what, what do you uh, see as a, as a whole? I know this will be a very, you know, big question, okay, about, you know, the, the status of the larger, you know, uh, field as a whole for the future, you know, it's, especially now that uh, you're mentioning uh, only having English is not uh, good enough. But what type of uh, semantic topics, okay, that you think the future, okay, uh, generations of media, communication, cultural studies, you know, scholars will uh, excel, okay, more than like people think about the, uh, you know, uh, past half century of uh, American communication studies, they think about quantitative, okay, people talk about the UK, you know, in the past is the is cultural studies, okay, yeah. the Birmingham school, okay, well, what would be the future, uh, you know, needs of the larger, you know, discipline, larger fields, you know, to create more knowledge? I think we have to break down the quantoid-qualtoid division. It's not enough just to know statistics, and it's not enough just to know meaning, mm -hmm. put crudely. Justin Lewis wrote a wonderful book, 2001, with Columbia University Press about public opinion in the U.S., where he showed that public opinion is far to the left. Mm -hmm. of journalistic opinion in that country, and the same applies in the UK, actually. Mm -hmm. But it depends how you ask the question. And one of Justin's great insights as well is to say that there is an inexorable interaction 
interlacing, interlinkage between quantoid and qualtoid. Because mm -hmm. after all, when you sit down to address a problem you're, and you try to quantify it, you're turning words into numbers. And then at the end of that, in order to write your explanation of your results and propose further research or pro propose policy or corporate or union or organizational changes, you put it back into words. Mm -hmm. So definition and interpretation are crucial integers. They're absolutely vital. So meaning is still there, but it gets pushed to one side. Similarly, when you look at, for example, academic writings on genre, on film genre, again and again there is a failure to recognize that there must be a quantitative component. Mm -hmm. If you say these are the features of a Western or these are the features of a Run Run Shaw movie, <laughs> you must be in a position to show that numerically or you're just pulling your interpretation out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important that these things come together. That's the first sure, thing. Sure, sure. So it's a methodological trend. Absolutely. What about subjects? What kind of subjects? Like why you decided to work on sports, okay? Sports seems to be not so important in Asia, okay, right. a, a scholarship. But when you, how, how can you decide, you know, what's the next most interesting topic besides, okay, personal? Yeah. Okay, everyone developed their research interest from their personal, but looking at the field as a whole, yeah. what would be the vacuums, you know, waiting to be covered, mm. okay, or, okay, uh, scholarly traditions that has been forgotten and now needs to be rediscovered? That's a great question. And I think that, first of all, there needs to be this business of doing the kind of review I mentioned earlier. So what are the activists saying, maybe under the radar a bit, mm -hmm. about an area of culture or communication, whatever we term we choose to use, where something needs to be done? Is it about occupational health and safety in manufacturing? Is it about labor relations in journalism? Is it about uh, the emergence of a cognitariat? Is it about the possibility of prosumption? You know, what are people saying who are in the front line of these issues? And then, what are the available discourses? What are the discourses that they're using? What are the discourses of today? And then go back and see whether anything has been addressed like this outside your field and outside your language and outside your time period. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's crucial in terms of what the topics are for the future. I think uh, labor, democracy, environmentalism, and social identities will continue to be important but will become more and more and more important. So mm -hmm. within communication, the notion that you know there is an overall way of understanding, say, media effects, that although media effects will never go away as a discourse, because it does matter, and it's what everybody wants to know. It is what your aunt and your uncle and your best friend think. You know, People are turned into violent criminals or seditious pol political figures or incompetent learners or competent learners as a consequence of the media. This, ar this argument will never die. So we have to understand it and master it, live with it. But what are the really interesting things? Because that debate will never end. It's gone on with the same antinomies mm -hmm. for really since publication of Goethe's books that led to suicides right, across right. Germany. So that's not going to end, it's not going to go away, we must master it, but we can't solve it. But we can intervene really importantly uh, with alternative histories of the media, for example, and communications, and alternative contemporary accounts that, that will, must focus mm -hmm. on the things that communication has either discarded or failed to address. Labour, barely addressed, environment, 
barely addressed other than in terms of communicating the representation of science uh, and social identities as understood through an activist lens. These to me are going to be crucial aspects of our future along with the relationship between the democracy word that I used earlier and capitalism. That the emergence of these is going to be massively important and for people based in Hong Kong or doing research here then the future relationship between China, the rest of Asia, Europe and the United States is going to be absolutely central. And some of the great ideas for thinking about that are going to come from China, but some are going to come from places like Latin America. So one of the crucial issues which you and I discussed the other night waiting for a train is that the other tendency that I think is going to be present is the one that says the global south is not just an object to be known, it is also a knowing subject from which theories can come. When I did my PhD, Leopold Sedar Songor was one of the major African poets, philosophers, and politicians. How do you, how do you spell his last name? S-E-N-G-H-O-R. Uh -huh. I have to check that out. was a, a, an important figure for me and many others. Amilcar Cabral, very important revolutionary figure. The definition of what counts as knowledge, what counts as cultural studies, must expand to include people from the global south and their theories about the world. And from that can come a much, much richer encounter than the one that is currently circumscribed in many ways by the welfare, warfare, bureaucratic nexus that is US social sciences. Thank you so much, uh, Toby. I was about to ask about the role of China and the global south, but you naturally ended, you know, uh, answered that question already. Uh, this has been uh, very, very inspiring, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think I, I'm set, you know, learning you even more from this conversation, <laughs> and I hope my student can do the same. Thank you very much, Jack, and thanks to the students. I hope to stay in touch with all of you. Mm.